Welcome to Dreamland, a program dedicated to an examination of areas in the human experience not easily nor neatly put in a box. Things seen at the edge of vision, awakening a part of the mind as yet not mapped, and yet things every bit as real as the air we breathe but don't see. This is Dreamland. It absolutely is. Good evening, everybody. Sunday evening, another Dreamland. I'm Art Bell. And we'll have the, um, the usual lineup in that Linda Howe is here this evening. She'll be with us in a moment from Philadelphia, which she calls home. And then a bit of a different tack this morning, uh, John Zajac, who is um, a physicist and author of The Delicate Balance, will be here. And he's got uh, a bit of a different theory on the Great Pyramids. So we'll talk with him uh, right after Linda Howe. At any rate, I think you'll find it a fascinating adventure into areas, uh, as the billboarding said, where things are not so neatly or easily put into a box. And now all the way to Philadelphia and Linda Howe. Well, good evening, Linda. Are you there? Yes, and, uh, you know, a couple of weeks I talked with Dr. Eugene Shoemaker, uh, who was uh, one of the co-discoverers of those uh, strings of comet pieces that have been bombarding uh, Jupiter for the last week. Shoemaker-Levy 9. And he described the uh, potential impact that some of those gigantic pieces would have made on our planet if they had hit here. Yes. uh, Essentially being a major catastrophe. And today in the paper in Philadelphia, they did a large headline asking, could it happen here, Uh, basically following up uh, the same idea that Dr. Shoemaker and I were talking about, what would happen uh, in terms of an asteroid impact. And they reported something very surprising that I think is important for us all to keep in mind uh, and consistent with the Dreamland theme that many things don't fit in any of the neat boxes that we think about. This is a quote. In 1989, a half-mile-wide asteroid flew through Earth's orbit. The Earth had been at that exact point only six hours earlier. Oops. This was reported in a journal to the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. The quote from this House of Representatives report continues, Had that asteroid in 1989 struck the Earth, it would have caused a disaster unprecedented in human history, unquote. To think that we passed within six hours of an asteroid that was the same size as Fragment A that impacted on Jupiter and caused the first big bruise on that enormous planet, and that we came that close without any of us really realizing at the time, I think, is a sobering fact. Well, it's it's sobering, Linda, I've always thought, that they did not know about this, apparently, until after it occurred. After it had happened, that's right. And they also ask a question that I think everybody should also give some serious thought to in this universe we live in. Uh, What is more likely to kill you in a lifetime? A hurricane, a flood, a volcano, an earthquake, a lightning strike, a shark, a grizzly bear, a poisonous snake, or a terrorist bomb? And the answer is that more than any of those would be a comet or an asteroid smashing into the Earth. The odds are the same risk as flying in an airplane anywhere. Wow. Yeah. And 
In addition to the fact that what has just happened on Jupiter could happen in our lifetime or maybe in the next thousand years to this Earth with yet unknown consequences, uh, as the violence has subsided on Jupiter, it has raised even more mysteries now with scientists who have some really interesting questions to solve. And among those are what is all the black stuff at the impact sites? It might be sulfur, but no one knows for certain. How long will these big dark bruises stay on Jupiter's face now? And the answer is maybe months and that they will be visible for amateur uh, telescope watchers. So anyone listening who still wants to see these dark spots on Jupiter's face, they are visible through amateur telescopes right now. Linda, um, one thing that a lot of people are asking, I'm asking in my own mind with regard to the dark spots, uh, Richard Hoagland incidentally thinks they're carbon, uh, but whatever they are, uh, Jupiter has a very violent atmosphere, and it's um, uh, it's surprising that in effect they have not been quickly erased. Yeah, and everyone is uh, is tracing that, and in fact, I'm going to play an excerpt from an interview here uh, from uh, Dr. Andrew Ingersoll, who is professor of planetary science at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. He is going to be summarizing all of the 70-some Jupiter studies for a major scientific review in Bethesda, Maryland in October. And he talked to me yesterday about several of the surprises they have so far, and they expect more to come, including the dark stuff, which he personally thinks is sulfur, and the issue of a carboniferous chondrite made up sort of comet hitting Jupiter is beginning to have a big question mark at the tail of it because they have yet to find any presence of oxygen or water. And as this interview begins, uh, Dr. Ingersoll is uh, discussing that, uh, that very fact, which currently is one of the biggest puzzles so far at the end of this uh, impact because it might not have been a comet at all. It may have been a broken-up asteroid. This is Dr. Andrew Ingersoll, planetary scientist from Caltech. So I think the, the big thing we've learned is that uh, there's not a lot of oxygen, either dredged up from Jupiter uh, or else uh, brought in with the comet. You thought that there was no signs of water? Uh, very little indication of water. Uh, because in this hydrogen-rich environment, the oxygen you expect to be tied up with hydrogen to form of water. Comets are made out of ices, and Jupiter is thought to have water clouds deep down. And, uh, that kind of result is already pretty firm, and I think uh, over the next few weeks we're going to firm it up some more and discover, people may discover traces of uh, oxygen. But uh, I think the, the lack of oxygen is so pronounced that we, we can say we already know that. It's already a big mystery. Uh, now, if your question is how long will it take us to figure out the mystery, that might take a little longer. Well, isn't the implication of the mystery that the comet itself may not have been an IT snowball, but it must be made of something else completely different? That, that's certainly part of it. Um, it, it the comet uh, really couldn't have been a, what we normally think of as a comet. It might have been a rocky asteroid, in fact. Um, the latest results uh, suggest that uh, it might be just that. There, the latest results uh, show that there's metal uh, in the comet that are now seen in Jupiter's atmosphere. Right. Uh, like and silica. And uh, you can get metals if you 
implication is that um, the uh, it wasn't a comet at all, but a, a, a rocky object like an asteroid. The other implication is that the comet didn't go deep enough uh, to dredge up uh, water from Jupiter's interior. Meaning that it may have been uh, vaporized uh, on the surface. Well, yeah, um, if you can speak of a surface, but... Uh, or the upper atmosphere. The upper atmosphere, yeah, from the tops of the clouds that we normally see to the uh, zone where the water is, is about 100 kilometers. And it's quite possible that the comet burned up before it got down that far. If Jupiter has no water uh, molecules in the uh, atmosphere at all, therefore no oxygen, what would that say to you? Well, that would be uh, just one of the most upsetting things to uh, our current understanding of how the solar system formed. Uh, and, uh, of course, we we all have open minds to that possibility that, that Jupiter just has no water, it has no oxygen. But uh, it's probably the last thing we're going to give up, faced uh, with a lot of barrage of new data. So, Art, right now... The sum is they haven't been able to see the water and the oxygen that they had expected, especially if this was an icy comet that was breaking up in the upper atmosphere of Jupiter. This is the truly one of the biggest mysteries so far from this impact. And Boy, it, it is. It yes. is, Linda. And it may not have been a comet at all. It may have been a large asteroid that broke up and was all kind of a hard metallic rocky material, and that may be why uh, they have got in the spectrograph some of these uh, metals. Well, that's fascinating, uh, and I, I'm sure this is going to continue to unravel over the next many months, isn't it? Yes, and I'm going to continue to talk with uh, Dr. Shoemaker, Dr. Ingersoll, some of the others, because each scientist around the country, um, I have a list of about uh, 75 or 80 of them, they're taking different aspects of uh, these, uh, of all of this data, and I think periodically I will try to uh, bring uh, some brief updates. I thought tonight it it was definitely worth going into this in depth. Uh, and uh, next week, when I'm your full-time guest, I plan to give you uh, some fascinating updates on what's been happening in the crop circles. We've been in Canada, the United States, and England. Uh, new mutilation cases with some very interesting anomalies and reports. And uh, if I have anything more to report next week concerning scientific discoveries on uh, the Jupiter impact, I will certainly we can talk about that too. Good. Uh, I'm also getting reports uh, on my regular syndicated program, Linda, of crop circles up in the Washington State area. You've been hearing about that? Yes, there was one that I know of that has two parts to it, and it's the only formation I know. It's in the same field, uh, and I have uh, a drawing of it, and the size is about 150 feet in diameter, and it is actually resonant with both a formation that was in England two or three years ago and with oh. the current new one that's up in Ontario, Canada, which I'm getting videotape and photographs and have a, a drawing uh, from, and we're also getting an hour on the wheat from the one in Ontario. So um, by next weekend, I probably will be able to report some of the preliminary data on that. All right. Uh, the gal who called, by the way, tells me she has photographs and she's sending them to you. Great. Was that Iowa or Carol? 
Patterson. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, okay. I, I wouldn't have gotten the names, but right. um, but somebody's doing it. <laughs> All well, right. that's that's good. And uh, so even while our attention has been out in the solar system, much has been happening on our own planet in these strange other mysteries. Excellent, Linda. We'll look forward to it uh, next week and your full uh, guest appearance. Next yeah. Week. Thank you very much, and I look forward to it. Take care, Linda. Yeah. Bye bye. If you would like to reach Linda Howe, uh, the way to do it is um, uh, to uh, write to her, and I've got her address here. And I might add that her documentary, uh, her new documentary, um, Strange Harvest 1993, is available now for $35. That's on videotape. And, of course, you can also get um, one of her publications, Glimpses of Other Realities, the most recent, $45. And Linda Howe's address is Post Office Box 538, Huntingdon Valley, Pennsylvania. Once again, Post Office Box 538, Huntingdon, H-U-N-T-I-N-G-D-O-N, Valley, Pennsylvania, zip code 19006. So whether you want uh, some of her materials and, or you would like to contact her regarding a sighting uh, or anything else, um, that is the appropriate address. And in a moment, we'll be back with a physicist and author whose name is John Zajac. And I hope I'm getting that correct. It's the first thing we'll ask him about. Right back to John. Imagine. My, um, uh, my um, listener suggests that we particularly ask John about the Great Pyramid. So many people, uh, of course, think the Great Pyramid could only have been built using some sort of alien technology. And uh, Dr. Zajac apparently feels uh, very differently about it, and so we're going to explore why he thinks that's a bunch of rubbish. And uh, so here he is from somewhere in, I think, Central California. Is that right, John? San Jose, California. San Jose, all right. Uh, John, I take it you do not think the Great Pyramid was constructed by the Greys? By the Greys? Or greens or yellows or... <laughs> the polka dots and the blues? Yeah, that's right. Well, no, I don't. Um, I could understand why one would think so, because even with today's technology, we cannot duplicate the Great Pyramid, even if we didn't have financial restraints and uh, political uh, problems and so forth. We could not reconstruct the Great Pyramid today. Apparently, science is wise enough to understand why the Great Pyramid is unique, but not so wise to be able to copy it. Hmm. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to allow you to make your case. Tell us a little more about yourself first, though, if you would. Uh, is it Dr. and is it Zajac? Is that correct? Zajac is correct. There is no Ph.D. associated with it. All right. Um, my claim to fame is the ability to have a very... Um, diverse and wide background and view to be able to show commonality between seemingly unrelated fields of science, very often creating a whole new field of science in the process. All right. How did you come upon this talent for connecting these things? Oh, it's kind of kind of inborn. Um, just a keen sense of observation and the recognition that things similar or related um, indeed happened in other disciplines. Uh, that has led me to some reasonable successes as Vice President of Research and Development for some leading corporations, um, Vice President of Research and Development for some leading corporations, such as Cutler Hammer, Eaton Corporation, uh, General Signal Corporation, mm -hmm. uh, Electrotech, uh, and some others. Oh, yes. And uh, uh, with patents in many diverse areas, from chemistry to electronics, mechanics, to uh, 
uh, biometrics, etc. So um, it's a wide field, but the field is because the greatest technological advancements typically happen when the astronomer is talking to the metallurgist or to the anthropologist. And, and when those seemingly unrelated scientists sit down and have dinner together and start realizing there's a common thread through their problems and put them together, then we come up with, with uh, theories that can be later substantiated for the uh, uh, extinction of the dinosaurs, for instance. Do you, uh, while we're at it, do you have any thoughts? Uh, there's been a lot of talk lately, of course, about the dinosaurs. Uh, because of Shoemaker Levy 9 plowing into Jupiter and the fact that it might have happened here, do you think they were driven extinct by uh, some comet? Actually, the evidence is overwhelming that that's exactly what took place. Uh, I was not um, it just throwing some loose terms around. It actually came about that uh, a very leading scientist, uh, Nobel laureate actually from University of Berkeley, Alvarez, uh, has a son. And uh, Alvarez is in many areas of physics, uh, very diverse by himself, now now passed away. But uh, he was having Thanksgiving dinner with his son, who was an anthropologist. Um, and uh, as they sat there, his son was saying that in, in different parts of the world, particularly in, in, uh, in Italy, that he could find some uh, very high levels of, of deposits of iridium and other such material, and uh, that that happened about the time of the extinction of the dinosaurs. And uh, Thomas says, wow, but do you understand that that's not popular on Earth? He says, yeah, I know it's kind of rare, but uh, what can I say is a half-inch thick layer in, in, in Italy. Right. He said, well, that's only really found in asteroids. And uh, what you should do is check on other continents and see if it coincides and if the layer is there as well, if it also took place at the time of the, the Great Extinction, um, which, by the way, extinctions have happened many times in Earth's history. And... Uh, Sure enough, it turns out that this layer is global, and uh, knowing the thickness of the layer, they could measure what they would anticipate the size of the impact to be. In other words, the the, the size of the sure. mass coming in from from space. Certainly, and it it turns out to be somewhere in the order of about three plus miles in diameter, which fits very nicely with with lots of things. They also could go backwards and check the frequency of great extinctions, which happens, oh, every 35 million years or so, which leads to a theory that there is a black, dark companion to the sun, um, about a thousand times out further than Jupiter, perhaps, that makes an elliptical path. And once every tens of, mil of millions of years uh, comes in close enough to cause uh, a gravitational tug, if you will, through what we would call our expanded solar system. And let me mention what that is. I mean, we know there's nine planets, but the solar system is actually considerably bigger than that. It's as far out as our Earth has influence. And there's a whole lot of space junk left over from the beginning of our solar system. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something called the Oort belt, if you will. It's a cloud that's sitting out very much further out than Jupiter, cannot be seen from Earth directly. Uh, and it contains something in the order of 100 billion pieces of rock junk left over from the beginning of time uh, with space junk in the, in the size of 1 to 10 miles in diameter. Oh, that's the junk. Um, uh, well, Don, I'm going to ask that you hold on. We're at the bottom of the hour, so we're going to do that break, and we'll come right back to you. Uh, my guest is John Zajac, and uh, he's got quite a strong moment.
1-800-259-9898. You're hearing Dreamland with Art Bell. To participate in the program, call toll-free 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers, area code 702-727-1222. Or the wildcard line at 702-727-1295. This is the CBC Radio Network. It is, and this is Dreamland. I'm Art Bell. John Zajac is my guest, and he is the author of The Delicate Balance, and we're talking about extinctions and cycles and dark suns, and John, are you there? Yes, indeed. Uh, there are a number of people, John, who think that uh, not only have there been cycles of extinction, but that man has been here before, uh, created civilization, and become extinct. Is it possible? Well, the evidence doesn't support that. Um, you okay. would think that if man was on planet Earth before, that there'd be some fossil, some some remnant of his existence. Um, and to date, we haven't seen any anything to support that at all. All right. Uh, there are those who believe that it's very deeply buried within Earth, but that's probably a pretty long shot. Uh, so what is your view of how all this occurred? Well, uh, we mentioned we're, take, we're talking about a delicate balance here, and right. if there's one underlying theme that I, I keep trying to present to folks is that just because something didn't happen yesterday, last week, or last year, or maybe even for the last thousand years, no reason to assume it couldn't happen tomorrow morning or next week. Um, the fact that we have gone through a very, very mild period in our climate and a fairly stable period in uh, geological effects and earthquakes and so forth doesn't mean that we can automatically anticipate that trend to continue. In fact, in many cases, we can uh, can look at, at history and say there's no reason for it to continue. History has never been this con- this consistent and this, this temperate uh, for a long period. And we, with relation to that, we were talking about uh, the Oort Belt and the fact that there are 100 billion, that's with a B, pieces of space junk sitting out there in a very delicate balance. Uh, we'll use that term a few times through this discussion, I think, um, uh, where these pieces are, are as far out at the very edge of our solar system as possible, held in place by the extremely weak forces of the pull of gravity of the rest of the galaxies and the pull of gravity of our sun. That is, you know, being out there a thousand times out further than Pluto, you've got to know that those forces are extremely weak. Therefore, small forces could indeed cause a disruption in that balance and cause some of that space junk to fall in towards the sun. And, of course, the Earth is in the path of some of that debris heading in towards the sun. Uh, the... Uh, the evidence for such is rather amazing. Uh, we, temp- we tend to be comfortable about things and say, well, yeah, in the early solar system, uh, there was lots of impacts caused ab- upon the planet, evidenced by just looking up the moon. Sure. Uh, the man, the moon, and all those craters are indeed obviously impacts. But the moon would have been struck by meteors considerably less frequently than the Earth itself because of Earth's greater gravitational pull. And it turns out that we have on Earth today that we can... Uh, measure and observe 28 impacts still in existence, of course, eroded and corroded and covered over by, by growth and so forth, but 28 major impacts. Major impact is between 1 and 100 miles in diameter. Uh-huh. Now, when we talk about the average piece of space junk that's between, you know, something between 1 and 10, we pick the arbitrary number 5 miles in diameter. A five-mile diameter piece of space junk with an average velocity of just under 50,000 miles per hour crashing into planet Earth would indeed cause a, a meteor impact about 100 miles in diameter. 
It would throw up so much dust and debris that we would immediately go into a new ice age. Um, certainly sunlight would be blocked out, and, and if animals and, and humans didn't die immediately from the shock, from the quake, from the uh, inhalation of dust, uh, one would certainly think that food growing would be extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, for some length of time, probably years, um, but would throw us immediately into an ice age. That is the rough equivalent, is it not, of a nuclear winter? It is indeed where the theory for nuclear winter came from. Well, all right. Um, it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting, but it's I, I, I'm, I'm just curious, John. If you were to do projections, yeah, uh, as they do with nuclear warfare, right, and this were to occur based on current technology, right. uh, how many people, if anybody, would survive? Maybe uh, you know, handfuls of people uh, would survive. Uh, let me give you a, a for instance. For instance, in the in the American arsenal, we talk about having 10,000 nuclear weapons, thermonuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. The Russians claim to have nine or 10,000, but our resources suggest perhaps 40,000. However, the average size of the American arsenal is about half a megaton. It's roughly a, a little bit bigger than that, approaching one megaton for the Russians. If we added what's known of the American and Russian arsenals together, and even added in all the stuff we think the Russians are hiding, we're talking in the vicinity of 50,000 weapons, less than one megaton apiece. That would, say, that would be to say that if World War III broke out and every single weapon got used, it went off. We're talking in the terms of 50,000 megatons. Mm-hmm. Okay. If something the size of a half, a five-mile diameter struck the Earth, we wouldn't be talking about 50,000 megatons. We'd be talking 100 million megatons. Mm. Big Bang. Of course, very the, uh, big bang. Of course uh, it would be concentrated in one location versus uh, a nuclear exchange being in many, many, many or almost all locations. Well, that may or may not be true completely. And as we've just seen, the gravitational pull of Jupiter broke apart uh, the, the comet that smacked into it. Uh, we might see fragmentation or companion parts as well. It has been... Uh, Two thoughts come to mind in this regard. Uh, it has been uh, pretty much shown by now that we've seen this, this comet break up that if we look at the moon and other places, that many of the impact craters are in straight lines, which pretty much says that it's multi multiple impact. So it would be like a shotgun blast. Well, you know, one blast would be enough to do it, but we might not have the luxury of only having half the Earth destroyed. Certainly, if, when you throw debris up into the atmosphere, you cause enough of a, of a uh, uh, global problem from a standpoint of, of falling dust and, uh, and blocking out of the sun to cause very, very many problems, uh, not only from inhalation of the dust itself, which is, of course, even during uh, volcanic eruptions, what has killed many people, but <clears throat> Uh, because of the sudden change in temperature. You know, uh, here on planet Earth, it's kind of interesting. Uh, people have looked at the, fall, uh, at the farmer's almanac for years and said, uh, gee, isn't it in county? They, they have a whole bunch of things which kind of tend to make sense to come true. And one of them is, is that a severe winter always has an early snowfall. <laughs> but that's not coincidence. That's absolute fact. And the reason why is, is when the first snow, snow falls, the white area reflects 97% of the sunlight coming in, guaranteeing the temperatures directly after snowfall to be cooler than they would have been if there wasn't a snowfall, causing additional precipitation in the form of snow, causing additional sunlight to be reflected, therefore causing the winter to be more severe. 
In fact, scientists have recently put together reasons why we have colder winters, uh, some, one of the reasons for having some colder winters. And it's got to do with whether or not the first snowfall takes place on the northern or the southern slopes of the Tibetan mountains. They said, now, wait a minute, that's for sure the other side of the globe. What's going on? Right. Well, what happens is is that with the first snowfall, just as we've mentioned, uh, additional sunlight's reflected, causing a, a colder region. The hot and cold cause high and low pressure areas. And as the jet stream smacks into the Tibetan Mountains, it needs to make a choice whether to go over the, you know, go up around the north or down around the south. However, when it moves around the Tibetan Mountains, it sets up a pattern which tends, I use the word tends here carefully, which tends to encourage either northern or southern movement of the jet stream around the rest of the, of the hemisphere. Therefore, the first snowfall in Tibet can very much affect what what we see in terms of uh, of our winter uh, because our weather patterns are very much controlled by the jet stream. In fact, when we look at the weather patterns we've had lately with droughts and and so forth, we see that it's really because the jet streams are not where they we, we typically want to, to find them. Right. Our, our droughts in California have been caused because the jet stream has been about 400 miles too far north. It's been raining buckets up in Washington, Oregon, but California has been having Mexican weather and has been very, very dry, causing the six-year drought and mandatory water rationing cutback of, of agriculture and so forth in, in California. Uh, the most uh, productive area in the country, by the way, for, for produce. We produce more, uh, more produce is produced in, in California, and by produce we're talking about fruits and vegetables, not particularly wheat, um, than any place else in the country. But many of the orchards have been forced to, to uh, literally have their trees uh, die for lack of water and so forth because of our long drought. We've also seen this in the southeast where, again, jet streams being too far north uh, change the weather pattern significantly enough to cause uh, thousands of chickens to die from, from the heat, and as well as extreme failure in, court, in corn crops and so forth. So, so our weather pattern is a very delicate system set up upon the difference in temperature between the poles and the equator. With the rotation of the Earth, that difference of uh, uh, temperature which drives the heat engine sets up the jet stream sets up our weather pattern and without that delicate balance being there we don't recognize what we end up with and even small shifts has caused large changes now in talking about this this meteor impact thing if I, if I may uh, which by the way is discussed in great detail in the book The Delicate Balance yes um, it is uh, also though uh, something that I've been talking about since uh, this uh, Comet going into Jupiter has been recognized in all the science journals, which is about a year and a half ago. It's kind of amazing that it didn't reach the public till now, uh, as many of us have been giving uh, lectures on it uh, uh, before this. But but what is exciting and interesting to me is uh, how real this is. In the, the, the beginning of your program, it was mentioned that the probability of any individual on Earth being killed by some uh, catastrophic event um, or by even some natural causes such as snake bite and bear, bear attack, uh, earthquake, I think she mentioned earthquake, um, but certainly hurricane and, and lightning and so forth was, was equal to a trip on an airplane. It actually turns out that although air travel is the safest means of travel, it is more likely that anyone will be killed by a impact of a foreign visitor from deep space, namely an asteroid or a or a comet, than it than they will be by flying because most people, the average person, takes more than one trip in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. That is very very significant. Now she also mentioned that the we had this major uh, comet or asteroid 
uh, fly by the Earth, crossing Earth's path six hours apart from where the Earth would have been. And that happened on March 31st, 1989. And indeed, um, it was close, but it did miss us by something in the order of a half a million miles. It was found only six days after uh, it passed by because no one was looking for it. It also turns out that in 1989 we had two other close encounters, and that's three in one year. That's I re- I, you know, I remember it very well. I remember the Associated Press reports of it, and they were always, gee whiz, we just found out we just had a close encounter. Again. Yeah, again. Again, and each time it was found afterwards, and each time it was because people would examine uh, photographs of the night sky and see what, what was that, it wasn't there before, and then make projections for its course and so forth. But because uh, they don't send out uh, big, long tails, and we don't see them coming from a long distance, uh, they're not being observed. Well, three of them in one year was rather unsettling. Uh, Remember we mentioned that there was this delicate balance holding things in the Oort Belt out there. And one of the things that happened significant, or maybe insignificant, I, I can't say, because uh, science has never figured out what gravity is. Uh, oh, we've got names called the graviton, and we talk about gravity waves. But no one has a clue what it is. We don't know how fast gravity travels. We don't know what it will tra- uh, travel through. We don't know if gravity waves can bend gravity waves. We don't know anything about gravity except Sir Isaac Newton, who we'll talk about later. I was sitting in our apple tree, so the story goes, and got hit by head by an apple. I've maintained that if there were no apple trees, we wouldn't have the word gravity. So, I mean, that's how, how in the dark we are about gravity. However, if you would take any significance to the event that in 1986, all of the planets wind up in a perfectly straight line, an event which happens only once every hundred, I'm sorry, once every 286,000 years, you know that that's not a common event. If gravity waves bend or are focused or add together, and we don't know that to be the case, could that have an effect or a tug on that Oort belt? I don't know. How long would it take for stuff falling out of the Oort belt to fall towards the inner planet? Yes. I don't know. How many pieces could fall at a time? Well, even one piece fell, probably hundreds, maybe thousands of pieces would fall. Uh, there's no reason to think a piece would fall when there's a hundred billion of them out there in different positions, delicately balanced. Here comes the kicker. In 1989, yes, there were three, but in 1990, there were six. That was exciting enough that the science departments of Yale and Harvard put together a, 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 a team to they came up with the first analysis that you were more likely to die if this trend if this trend does not go away. Uh, sent then Vice President Dan Quayle to Congress to ask for 125 million dollars, which was appropriated. Yes. Uh, to build a number of inexpensive, short-sighted telescopes to quote unquote look for the killer asteroid. Now it was believed at the time that that study was started that there were 40 pieces of space junk at least a half mile in diameter that were known to cross the Earth's orbit. And there were, except that in the first two years of study, they found 25,000 more. Oh. So as we speak, and the number goes up every day, there are 25,000 thousand pieces of space junk half mile or larger in diameter that that cross the Earth's path. Now, those may not be the most damaging ones because they are not coming from deep space. They are remnant of of different things, which we'll talk about later probably, but probably the asteroid belt or whatever that cross our path, but have been fairly stable for obviously a long time. The more concerning are those pieces that will fall out of the Oort belt 
um, that we don't have any clue about that um, may be of any size between 1 and 10 miles in diameter, as just just, just mentioned. And um, uh, that is much more concerning. And in the scientific community, it is a real concern. Let I'm me saying. ask you the question that I have asked others with regard to Sh Shoemaker Levy 9. Had Shoemaker Levy 9 been headed directly toward Earth instead of Jupiter, could we have stopped it? The answer is absolutely not. However, that does not stop science from thinking they have the possibility to do it. There is a joint effort with the USSR at this time to build deep space missiles carrying atomic warheads. And although it, it's feasible, the realities of it are not. And let me tell you why. Number one is that uh, there is no reason to believe that we will see it's the thing coming at us long enough advance. Now, with, with Schumacher, we saw this a year and a half in advance because it already made one close pass by Jupiter, and we saw that. Uh, Jupiter's gravity then, you know, said, no, you can't keep going, and pulled it back in, and so we saw this happening. And the only question for the last year and a half was picking the date. Interestingly, science did not pick a, a set of dates so far apart. They kept picking July 20th and 21st, which... Uh, where I thought was very conspicuous, coincided with the 25th landing of the first man on the moon. Um, but um, as we know, it you know we came in here for almost just about a week, from last Saturday to either Thursday or Friday of this week. That's right. So so it was spread out further than we we, we probably anticipated. Uh, we couldn't tell for sure the size of each of the objects because uh, of their distance and so forth. But we we were standing by, ready and waiting, because. Uh, we had uh, a year, approximately a year and a half notice of the event because of its last close pass, which indeed caused it to break up into fragments. <clears throat> the, the consideration here, though, is, is that if we saw three in 89 and that we continue to see close encounters passing by us, in fact, the closest was 1993, we had a piece of space junk approximately a mile in diameter, perhaps slightly less, come within half the space of the Earth to the moon. Oh, boy. Okay, I mean, closer still, much closer still. We talk about things closer than the moon. Under 200,000 miles, I would take it. Well, uh, if it was half the distance, it would be 125,000 miles. Uh -huh. so, so closer again, which leads us to believe that perhaps, and perhaps likely, we are a meteor shower. Of what duration? We do not know. Will it intensify? Oh, that, that would mean that the likelihood would be uh, numerically much greater. John, hold on just a moment. We'll be right back to you. Uh, it seems to me it would be numerically much higher if that is true. You're saying that we may be in a period of increased frequency uh, of these objects uh, making close passes? It would certainly seem so. We saw no record of it until 1989. Every year since then we've seen you know, a high number. A high number three is a high number when you haven't seen it for hundreds of years. Um, uh, that the closest one was just 1993, uh, time, time to be paying attention. However, look at the logistical problem we're talking about. Wait a minute, important uh, fact here. Are we paying attention now? I believe we are. I believe we're paying much more attention to the possibility. I think that what has just happened at, at Jupiter is uh, increasing public awareness and uh, making the public more willing to, to fund projects that would allow us to see what's going on. However... Do remember this. We didn't see the the, uh, the Jovian uh, comet until it was close, uh, making a close pass at the, at the planet. We only know now that it was going to take place because after we saw it go by and we had our eyes trained on it, if you will, 
um, we could project uh, where it was going and what would happen a year and a half in advance. Right. Okay, John. This yes, this calls for a little bit of speculation, John. Uh, speculate for me. If they determined that an object was coming, but that we could do nothing uh, about it, in other words, explode uh, things on it as we might, we couldn't change its path. Um, would they tell us? Might. Might indeed. Might. Might. Yeah. Um, Might not, not because though. not because Washington would make the decision, but rather because the uh, the scientific community and uh, people looking at, at looking for comets and asteroids, which by the way, almost all of them are found by amateurs. Hmm. All of the big telescopes have a you know very busy schedule, and they're all busy looking at at uh, new at, at new formations in the sky and and distant galaxies, and looking for for planets around stars and so forth. Um, they're not looking close by, and they don't have time to just sit there looking for for something they may not find. They have a, they have a real agenda. So if they missed one, joke would be on us. Well, they're not likely to find it, as I just mentioned. No, I most most uh, asteroids are found by by amateurs. It's an awfully good point, and and you know if it ever happened, uh, all the if there was anybody around to. Uh, uh, serve up recriminations, they would be saying, well, then why didn't the London Observatory see it or something? And there'd be people like you uh, trying to explain they weren't looking for it. They're not looking for it, no. Their budget is to go go find life on distant planets or something. <laughs> the, the, and, and it, you know, uh, it was re it's very John, 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 you've got to freeze it right there. We're out of time at the top of the hour. Relax for about six minutes. We'll be right back to Jack on the CBC Radio Network. This is a pre-recorded, previously broadcast program. From the Kingdom of Nye, we continue with your calls on Greenland with Art Bell. Call Art now, toll free at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-TALK. First-time callers, area code 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Or the wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295. 727-1295 in the 702 area code. Now again, here's Art Bell. Now again, here I am, Dreamland, on a Sunday evening. Uh, John Zajac is my guest, and we'll get back to him in just a moment. And, John, here's a quick question for you. Um, it came in by fax from Albuquerque. A quick question for your guest. What is your best guess as to when this dark body, the one you referred to, will again pay us a visit? John? Well, uh, that dark body probably isn't due for, oh, another couple million years. Oh, good. However... Uh, that may not be the only cause for for such things to occur. So it's it's not the black body, uh, figuratively called the uh, nimness, that would uh, necessarily cause this. Um, but if anything's out there that far, barely held on to to our sun's gravity, uh, it too may have changed um, its path and, and so forth. So so we really don't know. That's that's the whole mystery here. Is that we have barely understood some of what's going on, understanding why it may fall out of balance. If we had a real good handle on when things would fall out, when we'd be in, in deep in deep straits, um, that would make make things easier. Uh, right now, we're just barely smart enough to understand that 
these conditions occur, and they could fall out of balance quickly. The, uh, what we're talking about is whether or not mankind, with its infinite wisdom and technological abilities, uh, would just simply send up our nukes and, and blast the thing out of the sky. Well, it's kind of interesting that even just recently on CBS News, and I'm talking just three days ago, they were saying, yes, this is one of the few natural disasters that, that modern science can, uh, can prevent. We can't prevent hurricanes. Not exactly true. We could nuke those too, I suppose. Um, uh, we can't, you know, predict or stop earthquakes, something we really should talk about later on. Uh, we can't do those type of things, climatic change. But, sure, big rocks flying through space, yeah, we can blast those puppies out of the sky. But think about it for one second. Number one, we don't have any deep space probes. Number two, we don't have a Saturn V anymore, which, it's, which was required to get to the moon. That's true, except as a museum piece. Uh, except, yeah, except as a non-operational piece. That's, That's right. right. Mm -hmm. um, our shuttle it takes things into low Earth orbit, a couple of hundred miles above the surface of the Earth. Even when we launch the shuttle, have you ever seen one launch on time? No. No, I've never have. I mean, it may, there may have been one or two that actually went off within a couple of hours of, of assigned time. But even then, it takes four days just to roll it down to the gantry. Well, you see, that's exactly it, uh, John. I don't think we could do it either. If something right now was uh, in, 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 you know, close in, found to be headed toward us, we wouldn't be able to do a thing about it. And if that were the case, then uh, if they knew, why say anything? Well, it depends on who the they is. If it's the amateur scientists, they'll be yelling and screaming to anybody who will pay attention. If it's the scientific community, they'd probably rush to publish. If it was the government's observatories or paid-for uh, telescopes, they might indeed wish to halt it um, if they could keep it under wraps. Uh, I have a strong suspicion everybody in the know would be making quick phone calls to everybody they cared about. Mm -hmm. So it might not be able to be kept well under wraps, although it would only be spread about as a rumor. If I can examine one more little aspect of that is the following. I mean, how far away would we have to reach it? Some scientists say before it got as close as the moon, a quarter of a million miles away. Mm -hmm. But think about that for a minute. We just finished saying that the thing would have an impact of 100 million megatons. That is to say that that's when it's velocity, its energy is converted from potential energy uh, at the site of impact. What are we going to send up? A one megaton uh, charge? That's a pretty big weapon to us. A 10 megaton bug? What's 10 megatons going to do against 100 million? Well, I guess the conventional Nothing. wisdom, John, is that it would change the orbit not much, but just enough to cause it to miss. Well, that, does that mean instead of hitting dead center in New York, we only hit Brooklyn <laughs> with a 100-mile impact? I mean, you see my point. We'd have to be able to see it coming, you know, from, from great distances. The thing's moving at, at close to 50,000 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. Our fastest rockets travel at 18,000 miles per hour. Uh, first of all, do we have the technology and radar to time things so perfectly that we can actually get this thing to explode 100 yards ap uh, apart from this thing at speeds of 50 or 60-plus thousand miles per hour? Very probably. Probably not. Uh, and we have to get close because most of the energy is not going to go in the direction of, of the rock. So, so yeah, it gets more and more unrealistic. That's not to say that the government and our government that with the USSR aren't to do trying to build some deep space missiles to do it. Fortunately, the, the Russians can launch at will where we can't. Um, John, I, the, the, I wanted... the likelihood of it being successful are rather remote. Right. I want to quickly change directions. Uh, about the bottom of the hour, I want to get phone lines open. Right now, I want to ask you for the short version, if I can, uh, with regard to the Great Pyramid. Um, I'll give you to the bottom of the hour. I know you said it takes about an hour. But if you could give us 
sort of a shortened version of it or the high points of it. Uh, you don't think that an alien uh, race built that pyramid at all? Uh, who do you think built it, and how do you think they did it? First of all, I don't know who built it, except to say humans probably supplied the horsepower. Okay, that's item number one. Okay. Item number two is that to understand what's really taking place here, more important than knowing who built it, who supplied the horsepower, is who, does it, who supplied the design for it. And the design is so phenomenal, so overwhelming, that I will make, I will make a prediction right here and right now that you have never gotten a response on your radio show as strong as the one you're going to get one hour after I start talking about the Great Pyramid. Um, it's, it's happened everywhere we've ever gone because this is a very exciting and different approach. I can't summarize it to you in in in, in fast terms because it, the Great Pyramid story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you need, to, you need to know why it's unique, then how science was able to establish its uniqueness, then what it did that nothing on Earth could do, and why not only could science not build it, but science could not design it. One of the kickers we're going to get to at the end of that comment is, if every scientist in the world, just on paper, tried to design the Great Pyramid using all the supercomputers available in the world, for any other planet in the entire universe, it could not be done. Could not be done. It's a mathematical impossibility. And we will do that, and it's fine-tingling, but we can't. It can't do without going from beginning, middle, to end. And if we have just a few minutes before the, the bottom of the hour, uh, maybe we should close off on this, this connection thing with, with uh, the asteroid. And that is to say the following. You know, one of the nice things about your program is it says, let's look at things, let's look at them intelligently, and let's look at all aspects, but let's not put it in a box. Right. And that's really important. And in the delicate balance, we again take this wide view and tie seemingly unrelated things together, the economy, the ecology, scientific uh, developments, and so forth. And one of the things that happens as we do this, as we look at meteor impacts, again, which is covered in detail in the book and so forth, uh, it's not something that just happened because of what's going on on Jupiter. Uh, <clears throat> but as, we, as we're looking at those things, very often one says, gee, haven't I heard this someplace before? And sometimes we have. And here comes one of these things, going to sound really out in left field. But what we examine at the same time is prophecy. And not prophecy from Gene Dickens, Dick, Dickens mind you, but rather from, from three. We, we, I chose purposely to use only three from very different walks of life. And those three are no less than George Washington, the founder of, the United, of our Constitution in many respects, but certainly the father of our country. Um, Miguel de Nastidamas, probably the most popular secular uh, figure in terms of, of prophecy, a futurist and a world-renowned physician who would have been famous on that court alone had he not also been able to foresee and foretell the future. Yes. And just because, why not, uh, we look at John at Revelation as well, because uh, as a good scientist, you can leave no rock unturned, and there are things there that seem rather significant. Well, you almost seem to apologize for its consideration. You need not do that. Well, I only I only preface it as I do and give John third billing so someone wouldn't think that I am a, I am trying to uh, uh, be especially religious and or to prove the Bible. Neither of those are the case. But rather to say let's keep an open mind and, and let's make the examination. And it's kind of interesting uh, as we, we approach the close of the hour, the, the bottom here of the, of the hour so that we'll go on to the whole new subject of the Great Pyramid is to say if, if what we've just described is these three people being prophets, if they 
foretold their future, which was now our history, accurately, then maybe we should be paying attention to what they claim our future to be. And indeed, Miguel de Nostradamus speaks of, and he's misinterpreted very widely, but speaks of great devastation happening on planet Earth right. because of climatic changes, great drought and pestilence, probably due to food shortage and so forth as well. When the great comet makes its run, and that was from other quatrains shown to be in the latter part of the, the 20th century. Right. And so everyone said, ah, Haley's Comet, Haley's Comet. Nostradamus is predicting worldwide drought and famine um, in 1986. But that's not true, and it wasn't true for several reasons. He was speaking of an unknown comet because it does things that Haley's never could come close to doing, uh, including drying up the lakes and rivers and so forth. Not to say we don't have drought and famine presently, but not on the scale that Nostradamus was talking about it being severe worldwide. Right. So Miguel de Nostradamus was talking about this great comet, when the great comet makes its run that all of these universal uh, effects of Earth start changing. Uh, John, in the book of Revelation, also speaks of a time when a great mountain, a flaming mountain, is hurled onto the earth, and that it destroys a great um, uh, city. Uh, it's called Babylon, but it's, it's, it's a representation of Babylon, a place of, of sin, if you will. But we're a great trade center, for he says that uh, all the merchants at sea will wail and grind their teeth, saying, but what city could compare to this great city? Uh, which would cause, by the way, because of his impact, a worldwide earthquake that would uh, leave, quote-unquote, no island left in the sea, no mountain left in its place. How does Nevada and Las Vegas sound to you? In terms of safety? In terms of a target. <laughs> well, there are some who would, who would pick that. I, I personally think that if we're going to try picking a, a city of, of center of commerce, we'd probably have to pick New York. But um, <clears throat> with child pornography and so forth. So I, I do believe I detect some New York in your accent, don't yes, I? Yes, there's, there's, there's some there that's been trying to be, be tucked away for about 20-something years. Why did you leave New York, John? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> you need a, you need a long semi. list of reasons? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I was just wondering if it was connected to prophecy. No, it wasn't connected to prophecy. It was connected to good weather <laughs> and to uh, a nicer lifestyle and yes. to get away from some of the uh, rudeness and toughness of, of New York area. But um, because there may be no place on Earth that's safe. If we had time to talk about earthquakes later, we'd see that California may be the safest place in the entire country to withstand a major earthquake because they're due within the whole country. But California has earthquake standards and some, some provisions set up and a mindset that will probably help to handle it. And, and every mile underground, the telephone company has a 10-foot loop of wire to pick up to, to allow for you know, movement of ground and so forth without breaking down communication. So the earthquake, the major earthquake we're looking for in California will not be a pleasant one, but any place else in the country would probably be considerably more devastating. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the, the bottom line here is simply that prophecy is something which I keep threading through the things we're doing, and, when, and I think it's very significant because it shows that some of these things may not be out of left field but been foretold for centuries. And when we look at the Great Pyramid, we will find that the Great Pyramid is probably, and I say probably loosely, it's almost definitely the most incredible prophetic message ever left on the planet. Ever left on the planet? Left, uh, left by whom, John? Well, we'll have to discuss that, but, mm -hmm. you know, again, it's not that I, I'm claiming it was not built by humans, but that's the horsepower. The question is, who supplied the technology? Who supplied the design? Why was it so important to leave a prophetic message um, uh, for the planet 
uh, which no one can really refute. And it's very interesting how the message is left. But the message is not left in hieroglyphics. It is not left in symbols or terms or words. It is left in the universal language of numbers. In fact, we know from computers that every computer on Earth speaks the same language, regardless of whether it's built by the Japanese or by the French or by the Americans. They all speak the same language. It's true. And I have a, uh, a cousin who, when, when uh, being presented the information, says, well, a universal message. I mean, if it was really to be so so universal and someone wanted to leave a message, why did they just leave it on videotape? Why did they have to leave it numerically? And I'm just dumbfounded by that because the Great Pyramid is the oldest structure on Earth. It is 4,614 years old. And as I think of this, I ask him, well, you know, I can't understand Shakespeare. And he spoke, quote-unquote, English just 300-plus years ago, and I can't understand that very well. Uh, if we're going to put it on tape, what kind of tape should we put it on? Should it be on VHS, Super VHS? Should it be Betamax? Uh, is it on quarter-inch tape, three-eighths-inch tape, half-inch tape, one-inch tape? Um, at what speed is the tape running? Do you know that the li- average life expectancy of a piece of plastic tape but seven years? Sure. It's 50 years for a piece of metal tape. How many lines to the inch are we talking about here? Are we talking standard television broadcast, 330 lines? Are we talking uh, home broadcast, which is 220 lines, where we seem to lose resolution? Are we talking uh, online, super VHS, 440 lines? Are we talking super high density? All of this took place in the last 10 years. So if you wanted to leave a message for the ages, you would roughly build the pyramid. Well, you would leave it in stone. You wouldn't leave it on tape. You wouldn't leave it in some cryptic language which kept changing. No, that makes sense. You'd have to leave it in something universal. The only universal language is that of numbers. And so that's, that's the only possible thing it could have been left in. And certainly it had to be left in stone, for so that's the only thing that would last uh, the period of time necessary to get the message to whom it was directed. Who do you think this message... Uh came from? I know I'm, I'm probing ahead. Well, the message came from the designer. And who do you think the designer is? Well, I am absolutely positive it was no one from planet Earth. Oh? But I also... Oh? Yeah. Oh, oh really? I, I, now, this kind of goes against what I thought your position was going to be. And that is that, um, uh, that it was, uh, in essence, designed and built by Earthlings for Earthlings. And now you're suggesting to me uh, that is not necessarily the case. You think that I'm designers... I'm I'm making an absolute statement. The horsepower was probably supplied by humans. But the design concept was definitely not. And on what basis do you conclude that? Well, you have to, I, I, you know... I, if I told you 3.1497, you know, went down 17 digits, yes. and you didn't understand what pi was, it would have no meaning. So we have to first understand why it's unique. Then you can understand why Earthlings couldn't have designed it. I understand the math is unique. Uh, tell me now why that means Earth people um, could not have designed it that long ago. Well, first of all, the technology to do it not only didn't exist then, it doesn't exist now. The second reason why is, and by the way, I'm not suggesting it was made by some clever Martian either. The, the, and that almost seems that there's nothing left, but that's not true. The next thing, though, is is that I just finished telling you that the greatest piece of prophecy ever left on planet Earth is the Great Pyramid. But how do you explain the ability to foretell the future in such precise ways by anything that's called scientific? Given the available choices, then. Oh, I kept hoping you were going to break. You were going to go to break.
right now. I see. You, you want, that was my hanging you want, a, you want a cliffhanger, huh? Well, why not? Well, um, okay. And then we could start right in and, and with the permit as soon as we get back and, and do it up right. All right, John. Uh, very good. Uh, we will do exactly that. Uh, John Zajac is my guest, and uh, he wants us to be cliff-hung, so cliff-hung we shall be. <laughs> and we'll wait till we get back and find out about the, uh, the Great Pyramid uh, before it kills me. Who designed it? Um, when was it done? Who did the work? He suggests that our uh, long-distant ancestors did. But the designer was not... Uh, it was not human. The designer was not some Martian. So then, darn it, who was the designer? Perhaps he will suggest that that which we regard as a creator <laughs> was a designer. We'll have to wait and see. Once again, I'll quickly announce my picture now is on AOL for all of you who asked. America Online. If you go into the gallery section, just hit keyword in America Online and go to the gallery. It's in the new files section. Uh, it's a gift photograph, computer picture, and uh, a lot of people have asked for it, so there you go. You're listening to the CBC Radio Network. This is... Participate in the program. Call toll-free 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers, area code 702-727-1222. Or the wildcard line at 702-727-1295. This is the CBC Radio Network. It is. Good evening, everybody. I'm Art Bell. My guest is John Zajac. He is the author of The Delicate Balance and a Physicist. Uh, we've been talking about uh, the possibility of collisions on Earth, and now we're beginning to talk about the Great Pyramid. And uh, we're going to have to try and condense it, John, into something less than an hour now, because I do want to get the telephones open. Uh, okay. But I also want the story on the pyramid, so I, I want a lot of things here, John. Probably my cake and eat it, too. Well, I will try my best. Maybe we can get it in under the hour uh, spot that we talked about. All right, and, let's, uh, let's give it a try. Let's, let's give it a go. First of all, let's just say what the pyramid is. Uh, and also, probably what I'm not going to talk about, uh, this discussion is not going to deal with things like sharpening razor blades and mummification of cats and finding your anniversary date and all that kind of silly stuff. I'll look at some really basic fundamental parts of the Great Pyramid. And what we should know about the Great Pyramid is it's the only remaining uh, great seven wonders of the world. It is indeed the oldest structure on Earth and the largest structure on Earth. Now, there is one pyramid that uh, some people will claim was, is older, but that pyramid was built in four stages. The first stage was nothing more than a burial site, <clears throat> which does uh, predate the pyramid. But of any size, it, uh, it, no, it no, nowhere comes close to the Great Pyramid in terms of its actual age. Now, you mentioned that the Great Pyramid is the largest structure on Earth, and uh, one would quickly point out that the Great Pyramid is 454 feet tall, and the Twin Towers alone, uh, second tallest building on Earth, is uh, 1,368 feet tall. You say, John, what are you talking about the biggest structure? Well, let's just examine that for a moment. The Twin Tower was built by 5,000 people. It took them 11 years using modern equipment. But if we realize that the Twin Towers office building is indeed mostly space, 
Okay. That is to say that there's roughly an acre of space per floor. Sure. Um, the pyramid is the pyramid is dense. Obviously. The pyramid is, except for a couple of very tiny rooms, is solid stone. Right. So we said, well, let's expand the 209 foot base of the twin tower to that of the pyramid being 761 feet, and of course in both directions. And then if we had Godzilla come by and put his big foot on the puppy and squish it down to take the space out between the floors and the space out even in the floors itself, which is mostly girders and space again, then you'd find that next to the Great Pyramid, which is 454 feet tall, the Twin Towers would be 4 feet 10 inches high. Yeah, it gives us a scale. Yeah, another example. Uh, You could take all the masonry required to build a highway lane from San Francisco to New York, eight feet wide and six inches thick, and put it inside the Great Pyramid. In fact, when when we look at New York with all its uh, tall skyscrapers, we're reminded that it's built on Manhattan Island because Manhattan is, is rock, and we needed a good base, if you will, to hold up the weight of those large structures. Mm -hmm. But when you consider that even the Twin Towers only 4 feet 10 inches tall next to the Great Pyramid, you got to wonder what's under the Great Pyramid. Well, the first coincidence, and I'm very willing to accept it as a coincidence, is that only a few places on Earth could hold the Great Pyramid. And the Great Pyramid just happens to be built on a flat granite mountain, the height of which is the same height as the sand. And so that the pyramid could be built on top of it at what we would call ground level. And that that would represent um, the foundation of the Great Pyramid. So you are suggesting no uh, or a few other spots on Earth could support that weight? That's correct. Few spots on Earth could support that weight. Absolutely correct. So how did they know where to build it? Beats the stuff in enemy. Okay. But coincidences happen. Right. Okay. Uh, an interesting coincidence while we're talking about the Great Pyramid and its height is that <clears throat> uh, modern science using uh, new techniques from, from satellites have been able to pretty accurately measure the height of all the, the, uh, the mountains and so forth. And if we take the average landmass of, of Earth, and this is not insignificant to me, uh, but if you take the average land height of, of the Earth, the Himalayas being high and Florida being low, sure. uh, we find that the average height of land on Earth is 554 feet tall. Hmm. Same height as the Great Pyramid. Hmm. Uh, but, of course, coincidences do happen. Here, perhaps, is one that's a bit harder to understand. If we took a picture of the globe, when I say a picture, I mean if we actually went to the globe or took a, a split um, picture of the globe, one that does not distort land masses, and we decided to find the land, longest land parallel, that's to say uh, a line parallel to the equator that would go through the longest land line, we would find that that line would go through the southern tip of America, the northern tip of Africa, uh, and Asia, and right smack dab through the Great Pyramid. Hmm. Uh, coincidentally, if we took the land, longest land meridian, we'd find it to go through Europe and Asia and Africa and Antarctica. And guess what? The Great Pyramid. Right through the Great Pyramid. Now, there's only one place on Earth that those lines can can uh, uh, interconnect. The majority of places that you think could be possible would end up being underwater. But for some reason, way before Columbus sailed the ocean blue to prove that he knew where India was, which, of course, he was wrong, 
but long before anybody could have had a global map, the Great Pyramid ends up sitting right in the center of the longest land parallel and longest line of land meridian. It also does so in such a fashion as to make all four quadrants exactly equal in mass. Hmm. Very peculiar. Yes. How could anyone on planet Earth have distinguished this particular capability and just coincidentally at the same time be fortunate enough to find a solid granite mountain beneath it to hold its weight? All right. Would would these facts, John, give uh, give a poor investigator any clue as to um, the why of the Great Pyramid? In other words, uh, as you look at these things, these uh, uh, this coincidence of uh, of lines that you've drawn, would, would it give us any clue as to the why of the pyramid? No. But it would it certainly indicate that someone knew something about the Earth yes. in, in detail that only modern science knows in terms of center of landmass, height of landmass, sure, etc. Sure, sure. Uh, at the same time, you know, we always hear about the Great Pyramid being a very precise um, instrument. Uh, but you look at the thing, it looks like a pile of rock. I mean, it, it doesn't look so precise when you go up to it, does it? No. No, not at all. And, and there's lots of pictures in the book. Uh, maybe we should even tell people how to get it later. But there's lots of pictures in the book showing that. The, the thing that is not known by most people is that as the pyramid looks is not how the pyramid was built. It is 4,614 years old. But around 1,400 or so, a major earthquake loosened one of the top stones of the Great Pyramid. Mm -hmm. The stones that covered the Great Pyramid were called casing stones. Some people might take significance in the fact there were 144,000 of them, 20 tons per piece. Wow. These stones, these casing stones, were polished with a smoothness and a fineness equal or better to that of your reading glasses. Think of polishing stone that well. They're also held almost perfectly square of each other, and I'll tell you how they were... The, the precision of their placement in a moment. But it actually created a mirror, a mirror that shone light down back upon the earth itself, a, a, a pyramid of such brilliance that it could be seen from the mountains of Israel. It's indeed the only structure that could be seen from the moon. Now, I know astronauts have said <clears throat> the only thing they could see on earth uh, that they could recognize is the Great Wall of China. But the Great Wall of China is like 30 feet wide. Consider that with something hundreds of feet wide, uh, and square uh, also with a mirror surface, and you realize there's no comparison, except that on their flight path and cloud cover, what they saw was the Great Wall. Well, in addition, a lot of the original reflectivity is no longer there. Well, indeed, that's true, but I think the Great Pyramid is probably still one of the few structures that can be seen from the moon. I'm sure. In any case, the, the stone under the casing stones were just stones. Okay, they were cut with the precision of the people of the time, with the tools of the people of the time. Mm -hmm. And you might say, well, that's remarkable or it's nice, but it's not overwhelmingly spectacular. Well, let me go further. By the way, just so we don't lose track of those stones, when the Arabs found the means to topple these stones from the Great Pyramid, they ended up building many of the great mosques of the Middle East and several cities for, for Shahs and and others. Um, kind of interesting, and maybe we'll get to that later, but I doubt it, but uh, dealing with uh, the stones that were stolen. However, as they toppled these down, they would fracture and break some of them, uh, many of them along the way, uh, 20 tons apiece. But beneath the rubble, there were still some casing stones left, and it's those casing stones, the very bottom row, uh, that are pictured in the book and are shown. And after 4,600 years, you can look at these and see they're incredible flatness and straightness. 
at 20 tons apiece. In fact, without computer enhancement, you can't see the separation between the stones. They have just five thousandths of an inch of space between them. Five thousandths. That's roughly about the thickness of a piece of tinfoil, I guess, to between them. But the, the space was put there on purpose. The space was put there with a precision of better than two thousandths. Now, five thousandths is the thickness of a, of a hair from my beard. Okay? So we're talking here in, in relative terms. The thickness of the human hair is the space between the stones. But that space was precise within a thousandth or two and was put there to accommodate a white glue to keep the pyramid from absorbing water. That glue, 4,600 years old, is basically as strong as the stones it's gluing together. Cracks dark it start at the, in some stones, but stop at the glue. It is still watertight. You know, Elmer's would go nuts for this stuff. I don't know about you, when I was a kid, my soles and my shoes would always fall off. I'd glue them back on the first puddle they were off again. Certainly the shuttle scientists would love to have a glue to keep piles on their spacecraft. Yes. This stuff, after 4,600 years, has been analyzed. We know what it's made up of. It's oxygen and nitrogen and carbon and a few other things. But we can't quite figure out how these things go together to make this incredible glue to last this great length of time. Yet, in the Great Pyramid, it does. And all of these stones are placed so precisely. Now, when I say so precisely, again, we're talking one or two thousandths of an inch of their intended spot. Mm -hmm. They're 20 tons apiece. Just for to, to put this in perspective, uh, when they built the High Aswan Dam in, in, uh, in Egypt, they had to move some of their stone statues. They cut them into pieces 10 and 20 tons apiece. They could place those with an accuracy of one to two inches of the original <laughs> nesting place. Really? Now, if you say, well, they weren't trying that hard, it didn't matter. That might be true, so let's look one step further. The most accurate macro manipulator, that's a fancy word for precision movement of big things, was designed by NASA. Now we're talking, this is modern technology here, right? Well, the biggest item they could move was one and a half tons, not 20 tons. And the greatest precision that they could possibly muster was 50 thousandths of an inch, not one to two thousand of an inch. But you're busily making a pretty good scientific uh, presentation that we could not have done what you're saying we did. Well, now, e even though we, saying, we, you saying we, we may have had knowledge uh, that. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'd be glad to pin you against the wall and try to uh, get to the bottom of who you think it was who did it. Oh, but let's go. This gets fine. Yeah, all right. Uh, to do this, I need to mention something about measurements. Okay? Okay. Uh, for instance, did you know that, cause we, and the reason why is that you know we were talking about the universal language of numbers. Yes. So we're going to have to measure those numbers. And there is a small difference from what one might anticipate, but I need to explain something about that small number. Did you know, for instance, that the British inch and the American inch, although they were meant to be the same, are not? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. The U.S. Bureau of Standards will list the um, the British inch as 25.399978 millimeters, and the American inch is equal to 25.400508 inches. Uh, I'm sorry, millimeters. It's not a lot, and it's, it's accurate for the first three or four decimal, uh, three or four significant digits. But, in fact, only to the third. It changes. It's only accurate to the third. In fact, it's only accurate for the first two digits. The third digit's already off, but it's not off by a lot. The, the point being is, is that even when you try to copy things precisely, as America did trying to copy the British inch, and we set up a standard for it, and the platinum bar held in temperature and humidity and so forth, there are slight errors to it. Okay. And what I want to state is that... Um, 
what happened is is that he who broke the great the the, the code to the great pyramid no less than the greatest scientist that ever lived recognized that if he used an inch but not the British inch and not the American inch. It was a slightly different inch, but almost as close to the British inch as the American inch is. Okay, oh. it's off by a thousandth of an inch. Okay. Okay, which he calls the sacred Jewish inch. Okay. One might call it the sacred Israeli inch for slightly more accuracy, but he calls it the sacred Jewish inch. Or the ancient inch. Or the ancient inch. <laughs> and that that inch is the, the, the significance for breaking the code of the Great Pyramid. And... And it's very important that we talk about, about that. And, and it's also important to know that it's not John Zajac who came up with this code, and it's not Joe Schmidlap at 33rd and 3rd Avenue in, in Manhattan. The greatest scientist that ever lived is, without real argument, Sir Isaac Newton. Yes. A Newtonian physics, you know, most of what we, we learned about physics was all from Newton. What people don't know about Sir Isaac Newton was that he accomplished all of his great works and discoveries, which were enormous, uh, just absolutely enormous, and we don't have time to go into them all or even the part of him, uh, he accomplished by age 28. At age 28, he was trying to prove his theory of gravity, but he had a problem. Science couldn't accurately measure the size of the Earth for him to prove his theory of gravity. Mm -hmm. And he needed to know more accurately the size, particularly because he was sure that there'd be a bulge about the equator due to the Earth's rotation. And he had heard that the, all the history of the world, past, present, and future, was contained within the Great Pyramid. And he went there to find the size of the Earth. P.S. He did not find the size of the Earth. It is there, but he didn't have the means to make the measurements to find it. Hmm. Um, however, he was so taken by what he found that he dedicated the bulk of the rest of his life to the study of Scripture and indeed wrote a book about the interpretation of the prophecies in the Bible published after his death, by the way. any case, what is it that Sir Isaac Newton found? Well, if you and I took apart a Honda, I won't say a Ford anymore because that might be more confusing, but if we took apart a Honda, we would notice something was pretty significant in terms of a universal commonality. In other words, things turned out to be in equal denominations if we picked a unit that we personally call the meter or the millimeter, if you will, which is the vision of the meter. But if we said, hey, you know what, this is a, if, if we pick some unit, this becomes a 10-millimeter bolt and a 20-millimeter bolt, and this becomes a 50-millimeter wheel or a 150-millimeter gear or whatever, but everything would work out into millimeters. Well, Sir Isaac Newton found that everything in the Great Pyramid broke out nicely in something called the sacred Jewish inch, which is just about as close to the British inch as the American inch is. Okay. And when he did this, he started with some basic things. He started with the, the height of the pyramid and the periphery of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. Well, that's pretty straightforward to do, right? Sure. Well, when he did that, he found something kind of interesting. Now, you know that uh, pi is twice the radius of the circle divided into its circumference. Yes. So Sir Isaac Newton, just out of curiosity, divided twice the height of the pyramid into its circumference or periphery. Mm-hmm. And it comes out to pi to six significant digits. Interesting, because in his day, science could not yet predict pi any greater than six significant digits. All right. Well, I think you've made a pretty good case that science at the time could not have done what was done. Um, who, um, who do you theorize 
uh, did it. Do you believe, uh, John, that it was a... No, but you can't, you can't do that to me yet, because I'm going to prove that something's not possible, but to do that, you have to know the parts I'm going to use to prove it with. Fine. Let's, let's go one step further. Does the number 36,524 mean anything to you? Nothing. Nothing. But if we move the decimal point, that becomes three, and that's the periphery of the Great Pyramid, by the way, mm -hmm. inches. That comes out to 365.24. I don't feel bad about this, but how many days are there in a year? 365. Exactly. No, I suppose you, uh, are we averaging here with leap years and such? I... Yeah, well, either way, most people would say 365 and a quarter, which would be 365.25. Okay. say that's pretty close, but not close enough. Because, you see, it wasn't until George Washington's time that we even adopted the Gregorian calendar. And the Gregorian calendar basically says, yep, you'll have a leap year every four years to make it come out right, but not exactly. So to make it come out exactly, we have a leap year every four years, except in years ending in double zero, except in years that even evenly divisible by 400, in which case we put it back in anyway. Bottom line is, the exact length of the Earth year is 365.24 days, something that the average citizen is not quite aware of, something that we didn't adopt uh, throughout the world until roughly George Washington's time 200 years ago, yet 4,614 years ago, built into the Great Pyramid, is this wonderful little thing called the exact length of the Earth day. We've also heard that the Great Pyramid points perfectly due north. That is not true. It is off by six minutes of arc. Now, each degree, you know, 360 degrees in a circle, you could break a circle down into 60 minutes, and it's off by six of those minutes. Okay. Turns out that in the International Geophysical Year, modern science and in its infinite wisdom decided to build a perfect monument to the Earth and decided to point it due north. Oh, I'm sorry. I said that the Great Pyramid was off by, by six minutes of arc. That's not true. It's off by three minutes of arc. The best that science could do in building that monument was to make one six minutes of arc off, twice the error of the Great Pyramid. But since the Great Pyramid was built, there has been a movement of the North Pole. In moving that backwards as we, best we possibly can, 4,600 years, we find that the Great Pyramid pointed to 0 .001 minutes of arc when it was first built. A lot better than we could do. John, hold on just one moment. We'll be right back to you. Do you have hardest? And I want to ask John, John, we've got about a minute now, and you're leading us uh, down a very careful path, so tease us with what's just ahead a little bit in the path. Well, what I want to tease you with is, is what directly ahead. So far, we've talked about whoever designed the Great Pyramid knew an awful lot about planet Earth and had technology greater than we presently possess today. However, one could say, could that not have been built by a smart Martian? Mm, perhaps. But so far, all we've looked at is the evidence on the outside of the Great Pyramid. As soon as we come back, we're going to look at what takes place on the inside of the pyramid, which not only excludes humankind, but excludes those Martians and, and Venetians as well. All right. Uh, well, I'm going to look forward to that. John Zajac. And next we find out what's, uh, what's inside the pyramids that would exclude, uh, exclude us and exclude any grays or greens or whatever they might be. Okay. I'm up for that. Uh, once again, I want to mention uh, my picture. <laughs>
Welcome to Dreamland, a program dedicated to an examination of areas in the human experience not easily nor neatly put in a box. The unexplained, the unusual, the unknown. This is Dreamland. A pretty good trip around the outside of the pyramid, and I think you've proven your case, but I guess you want to prove it a little further by going inside. What's inside? Well, the in information inside is very different. The outside shows that it understood planet Earth very well. One item we did not get to mention, maybe we didn't mention, but one significant item uh, that we should keep track of is that the Great Pyramid uh, is, has a slope on it, which is peculiar, but allows it not to cast a shadow at noon on the vernal equinox, something that will come up importantly later. But when we get inside the pyramid, the whole message changes. And what uh, we'll do this now in, in Panavision for all your viewers, but basically the Great Pyramid is the only pyramid uh, that didn't have hieroglyphics, did not have a burial chamber, does not have any treasure, does not have uh, any body in it. It basically has two shafts, a, a downward sloping path called a descending passage, an ascending passage which comes off of that going up at the same angle the other one is going down. It breaks into something called the Grand Gallery, where these passages that are only about three and a half feet tall suddenly jump up to 28 feet high. Hmm. Off of that Grand Gallery at the top is something called the King's Chamber, and off the bottom is called the Queen's Chamber. And the Queen's Chamber floor intersects the ascending passage and produces an angle. And we'll get into that angle momentarily. Now, when Sir Isaac Newton went into this, very simple little stuff inside, the ascending, descending passage in the Grand Gallery, and that angle we talked about. When he got inside, though, he recognized that in the whole pyramid, there is only one set of scribe lines. No hieroglyphics, no words. In fact, the Great Pyramid was, was actually built 500 years before the invention of the spoked wheel, and before the invention of higher hieroglyphics. But the scribe lines coincide with what he called the year 2141 B.C., a time that the original or earlier North Star shone down its very narrow passage. The North Star does not yet shine down that passage. It is due to happen in the future. We probably won't get to talk about it. In any case, from that point, he says, if I measure in what he called sacred Jewish inches, inches and call each inch a year, something rather interesting happens. If he goes forward from those scribe lines up to the face of the Great Pyramid, he comes up to the year 2623 B.C., the year that the Great Pyramid was completed. If he goes down the passage, he comes to the point where the ascending and de descending passage uh, uh, split. And that happens in the year 1453 B.C., which coincides with the exodus of the Israelis from Egypt. As he continues going up, the ascending passage, he comes to the year 33 A.D., in which case this tiny little passage um, explodes into this huge room of tw with the 28-foot-high ceiling, coincidentally called the, uh, the Grand Gallery or the Passage of Light and Knowledge, on the year 33 A.D., most interesting. Yes. What he does then is looks closely at that triangle that we mentioned, the horizontal floor of the Queen's Chamber intersects the ascending passage right at the beginning of, of that, of that uh, chamber. And again, um, if we consider this a triangle, uh, the, the, um, the uh, horizontal leg would be equal to the beginning of that great passage opening, if you will. And that coincides not only with the year 33 AD, but the Great Pyramid, measured by laser and other techniques, is the most heavily measured structure on planet Earth, measured thousands of an inch, comes out 
to not only a year, but they can actually take the day. And that comes up to the year 33 AD on April 3rd, coinciding with the crucifixion of one man of earth that we call Jesus Christ. Right. If we look further at that triangle, we will see that the, um, uh, the, the, where the where the corner of the triangle comes together, comes together on the September 29th, 2 B.C., Christ's birth. And you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Christ was born in the year one. People, most people think, I suppose, think he was born in the year zero, but there was never a year zero, so it had to have been born in the year one. Right. But there's a two-year error in our calendar. And in the past, we always used the same references going back, and we used the... the, the um, uh, the uh, reigns of kings to determine how long ago things took place. And one right. king in history ruled twice, second time under a different name, caused a two-year error in our calendar. So indeed, we now know that Christ was probably born in the year 2 B.C. Some will argue 3 B.C. But basically, we know there's an error in our calendar. It's about two years. Two years places it into the B.C. 2. So here we have this Christ triangle, as it's called. The Christ triangle depicts three dates depending upon which leg you measure, either Christ's birthday, his crucifixion, or the other leg comes up at October 14th, 29 AD, the date of his baptism. Interestingly, if we take that Christ angle, keeping the angle very precise, and it is very precise, it's 26 degrees, 28 minutes, 9.63 seconds. Trust me, nothing gets more accurate than those numbers. You place that over an area of, on a map of, the, of the, uh, the Middle East or where the Great Pyramid is, putting that triangle exactly as depicted here over, that, uh, over the Great Pyramid itself, so that one of the corners of the Great Pyramid, we find that there is a horizontal line running parallel to the equator, the other line goes right through Bethlehem. It goes right through Bethlehem. In fact, if standing on the Great Pyramid, one would see the sun rise, literally, on the longest day of the year, directly over Bethlehem. So what we have is something that is mind-boggling. What we have is a structure using science, modern science can understand but can't duplicate, that is putting together a prophetic message of the future, for it was built. 4,614 years ago, talking about the greatest natural event or the greatest um, event to affect mankind on planet Earth to be a person born in Bethlehem in the year 2 B.C., the way our calendar counts. And that is absolutely mind-boggling. For whoever built this could no longer be just a clever Martian understanding science, technology, and the Earth, but has to be someone who is able to either foresee the future thousands of years in advance or control the future so importantly that far advance that we can only call it supernatural. If you combine that with the fact that this is obviously a message of a spiritual leader, you end up with an amazing paradox that it can't be a, uh, a human and it really can't be quote-unquote intelligent life forms from another planet. So, your conclusion, I think, is what my guess was, that somehow this information, this technology, was imparted by a supernatural force, which you probably would, would view to be from our creator. John? Well, scientifically, I can't define God, but I can say that what we're talking about can only be defined as supernatural. And you know what? 
It goes one step further if we examine the mathematics of it. Remember I kept saying, well, that could be a coincidence, that could be a coincidence. Yes, you were building your case. Yeah, but you know what? It's mathematically impossible. Let me tell you what I mean. If I asked you to draw on a piece of paper a one-inch diameter circle, you could do that, right? Mm-hmm. If I asked you to, design, to, to draw on a piece of paper a square with a one-inch leg, you could do that. Yes. If I asked you to design a triangle where two sides of the triangle were one inch in length, you could do that. Yes. However, if I asked you to design me a three However, if I asked you to design me a three-sided square where all points were equal distance from the center. Can't do it. That's that's mutually exclusive. That's three separate things. None of the none of the above can happen simultaneously. Right. Because each one of those is a unique object, and you can't have a round square or a three-legged square. Right. And therefore, it's mutually exclusive. No one in the world has ever looked at this, but look at the mutual isla elasticity. I can't say that. Look at how exclusive what we're going to be saying is. The Great Pyramid's height is fixed by the average height of mass on Earth. Yes. Its periphery is fixed because it is equal to the length of the year. Right? Yes. Now, if I ask you to design pi to that, you say, wait a minute, I can't do that unless it already happened because you can't change the periphery height ratio if the periphery and the height are fixed. Yet, it comes out to pi. Mutually exclusive. All the greatest scientists in the world with entire universe. All right, let me stop you here. John, you, you are making the case, are you not, that the Great Pyramid is, um, without knowing its source, prophecy in numbers. Absolutely. All right, um, if you... If you can, uh, if, if, if you can uh, mathematically derive uh, the biblical events that you talked about, can you um, can you derive any further prophecy or as yet um, unrevealed prophecy from the same numbers? I can't. There is a date further up where the where the Grand Gallery, you know, ends, and that's the year 1914, start of World War I, first global war, um, invention, if you will, or, or the culmination of modern technology from a medical standpoint, aviation standpoint. Uh, technology really started exploding in the beginning of the, the 20th century. Um, but no, after that, there are those who argue that the timeline changes to an inch per month, et cetera, et cetera, looking, making a closer cosmetic look, uh, 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 look at what's taking place, microscopic look. Uh, I don't particularly follow it. Most people making predictions of the future have kind of put the square peg in the round hole in my mind and usually been proven wrong if, they, if the date ever got to pass. So, no, I, I do not see directly what it's telling us about our future. It is really... I think showing some key points, but that the most significant point was that of the, the birth and crucifixion of a very significant figure in our history, um, which most would not argue was the most significant event to happen on planet Earth. You could be Jewish or Muslim or whatever. You have to be Christian to say, yeah, uh, belief in Christianity probably affected more of the world than anything else. All right, John, um, I do want to open the telephone lines, so let me do that. Let uh, everybody ask a few questions. Uh, you've had a lot to say, and there's a lot to ask. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with John Zajac. Hello. 
Good evening, Art. Portland, Oregon, KEX. Yes, sir. I have a couple of questions for Mr. Sadek. Yes. Uh, in reference uh, to Edgar Casey, first of all, I reference to Edgar Casey, the psychic who you failed to mention earlier. What's your opinion uh, of his prediction that the pyramids, uh, ancient hall of records, would be located, and that its builders were Atlantean colonists? And two. What's your opinion of the effect of the upcoming alignment of the planets in our solar system on the Earth and its precession? All right. Thank you. Um, I didn't mention Edgar Cayce only because I was not trying to look at all prophets, but rather three unique ones. Um, there may be some significance to things that Edgar Cayce has done, some things looked important. I could never put my finger on on the precision of it and uh, authenticity of most of it. That's not to say it wasn't authentic. I just... I could. In terms of the uh, upcoming alignment of the planets, uh, we had uh, the most significant one that I'm aware of uh, in 1986 when they were all in a perfectly, perfectly straight alignment. Usually when we talk about alignments, we're talking within so many degrees, right. either 90 or 20 or something. But in 1986, they were perfectly in a straight line. Um, I don't expect anything more spectacular than happened in 86, and I'm not sure that anything happened in 86. Uh, these things are very far apart and pretty small. However, so were the force changes necessary to knock things out of the Oort belt. So if things were knocked out of the Oort belt in 1986, the question is, how long does it take to fall in towards sun before we see them? And the answer is, I don't really know. They may be moving at 48,000 miles per hour when they get close to the Earth, but they start out moving at, you know, 20 miles an hour. So uh, uh, one, one doesn't know. Uh, one can only speculate. All right. Uh, wild card line, you're on the air with John Zajac. Hello. Uh, good evening, Art. Uh, good evening. Okay, let's come to my right. Where are you, sir? KBI. Uh, that'll be up in uh, the Washington area. Okay. Yeah, up here in the... In the... All right, go right ahead, sir. Listen, uh, you know, you uh, your guest here uh, revolves everything around Christ's birth. He fails to uh, acknowledge that... Uh, a Buddha was born in 560 B.C., and Buddhism, the missionaries, the Buddhist missionaries, went over to Mesopotamia and the Tigris and the uh, Euphrates, and uh, they uh, spread the seeds of the concept that there is a higher being. Well, uh, perhaps so, but apparently the mathematics does not uh, surround Buddha. It surrounds Christ. Does that disturb you? Yes, it disturbs me a lot. Well, I guess, um, I, I guess there's nothing we can offer. Uh, that man is there, John, uh, except the map is the map. Yeah, one, one needs to put one's personal purposes and bias aside when looking at evidence. Um, then that, that is what that sounded like, too. On the wild card line, you're on the air with John Zajac. Hello. Yes, good evening. From Albuquerque. Um, question. Now, this was on your show, Art, uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, there's going to be a discovery of an ancient library within the uh, pyramid. Is that so? Is that in the waiting? John? Oh, you're asking me. I'm sorry, I thought you referring to an old program of yours. Well, um, not that I'm aware of. Apparently, from a previous caller, uh, Edgar Casey, you know, so stated, um, I have uh, no opinion on the comment. Okay. All right, thank you. On the uh, toll-free line, you're on the air with John Zajac. Hi. Good evening, Art. This is Jim in St. Louis. Hi, Jim. Finally, St. Louis, we get the full three hours of the show. We love it. We love it here in St. Louis. Good. Anyway, uh, great show. I had a couple questions for your guest. He mentioned earlier that uh, that uh, men provided the horsepower. What uh, physical, I mean, actual means do they have to to construct this um, this themselves? And secondly, um, is he familiar of the 
this this hall of records that might lie beneath the sphinx. All right. I really doubt the hall of records is beneath the sphinx. Um, we have here in Jose a Egyptian museum that talks about a few passage that goes between the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx. And I asked the curators, why do you speak of something you've never found? They go, well, it must be there because why else would the Sphinx be nearby? And I go, well, <laughs> that's, that's the most convoluted argument I could possibly imagine. Um, I don't think the Sphinx has anything to do with the Great Pyramid per se, except that it's proximity. Uh, also, it did not weather well with time. If you look at the Sphinx, they're always trying to plaster it up and fix it. It's made of soft sandstone, not of the hard limestone that is impervious to the elements of the casing stones of the Great Pyramid were. I don't know anything about a whole of records or um, any great library that would be found. It's not to say it isn't there. It's not to say anything about it except right, well, I'm personally most familiar with it. All right, John, we'll leave that one alone. What about the physical construction? What kind of technology could have accomplished that? Well, that's a mystery. You know, the Japanese recently just spent uh, a great effort with something like 2,000 workers trying to make a scale pyramid with a uh, much smaller stone. And they set out to prove that that they could they could figure it out by rollers and by slides and by doing other things and of course they could use measurements such as laser beam and they basically said complete mystery even the Japanese can't do it was their conclusion so that was googling a small one so the Japanese cannot accomplish it on the toll free line you're on the air with John Zajac hello uh, Art how you doing Mike and Albuquerque yes um, what about the um Turn your radio off. Please. I wish I could have my neighbor. Okay, well, thank you then for the call. And uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with John Zajac. Hello. Hi, this is San Diego. Yes. Uh, quick opinion do you have, John, on monuments of Mars, the structures on the moon, and uh, what's your opinion of the uh, mystery surrounding the Bermuda Triangle? Okay. <laughs> well, um, first, I have seen a picture which has been reportedly uh, taken on the surface of Mars. Um, I've also seen one look like Ted Kennedy, they tell me. However, I've gone through all the slides from NASA, and I've never seen them in the originals from NASA. So where these came from, what tabloid, I couldn't answer. I'd need to see more and make sure it's not just illusions and light work and so forth. But nothing, I have seen nothing to make me want, uh, feel that there's really something there. Now, there may be, but I have seen nothing from NASA, which is my source, um, to conclude that. Um, in terms of the Bermuda Triangle, there are some areas of the Bermuda Triangle which have just been exaggerated, put out of, out of proportion. Certainly, Edgar Casey thought a great deal about this, but that Atlantis would one day be home. Um, uh, that's, that's really a discussion for a whole other program. Can't go into it much. It's just to say that much of what we see reported about the Bermuda Triangle easily explained away without supernatural phenomena. All right. Very quickly, on the toll-free line, you're on the air with John Zajac. Um, yeah, I was wondering about a couple things that I heard about. One was that geologists think the Sphinx is at least 9,000 years old, and the other was the, who said that uh, the blocks of the pyramid are not actually stone blocks at all, but they're concrete blocks. All right, we'll, a point. Yeah, we'll answer uh, those when we come back. John, we're at the bottom of the hour. You're listening to the CBC Radio Network. Come on, it's all the Dreamland. Your last caller had uh, asked two questions. Uh, first was, uh, if we say that the Great Pyramid is the oldest structure on Earth, what about the Sphinx, which is at least twice over 9,000 years old? And he, the answer to that is, yeah, it's way over 9,000 years old, in fact, because the Sphinx is made out of a natural cropping of stone, sandstone, and was carved. The Sphinx is carved, not not built. 
therefore it's as old as whatever made it, uh, but it wasn't made by mankind either. It's a natural formation that's carved. In regard to the Great Pyramid saying that the stones were not carved, but, but rather uh, a cement that was molded, if you will, um, I've heard this argument because people are even more impressed because uh, not only was what we call cement not bended over not afterward, but think of the control problem. How would they have made the mold? How would they the name? How would you prevent shrinkage? How would you prevent the warpage that takes um, no two are alike. I'm talking about precision. More impressed if it could have been a cement that was molded and popped out of a mold. Even more so than just the carving, which is spectacular by itself. What about the materials in the blocks? He asked about that. He said um, uh, perhaps it is not stone, or some people have thought it is not stone. Well, he was suggesting that it, w that it was some type of cement. Oh, I thought even more. I think maybe that's sure that would entail entail later technology. Now, Al Klein, you're on the air with John Zajac. Video Free America. Yes. Listen, uh, my my knowledge of the subject is not real big, but I'm wondering if there's any question of the pyramid of uh, handing the Ten Commandments or the possibility of uh, the uh, refining of the Ark of the Covenant uh, uh, pyramid correlation. All right. Do you find any math that coincides with those events? I see no. Nothing that coincides except the Ark Covenant dimensions are exactly um, uh, easily divisible by the dimensions of the King's Chamber. In other words, the multiple is the, is the Ark of the Covenant dimensions multiplied by a continent. Also, the, the only thing that I know of with regard to the tenements is that there are three granite books that they could not carve through and had to carve around to get past the ascending passage, which is believed to have come from the same mount because the very unique red granite that the Ten Commandment tablets were carved in. But you can't absolutely prove that, but it does test against minerals extremely well. All right. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with John Zajac. Huh? I hope you'll take a, a skeptical call. Uh, of course. Uh, are you calling, sir? I live in Spark. Sparks, Nevada. Yeah. All right, go ahead, sir. Well, your statement that modern technology can't uh, reproduce the pyramid is wrong. In fact, I've seen a lot of uh, stories and reports and a record of uh, graduate engineering students actually seeing the model of the pyramid or a section thereof. It's been repeated more than once. So that statement that modern science can't do that is absolutely wrong. Technically, okay, where was this done, sir, just for the record? Uh, I, thought that I, I seem to remember the story in uh, National Geographic. It was a story about the pyramids, and then uh, it re there was a small section of re that uh, reported the technology uh, and how it was built. But uh, I wanted to also bring up something I've seen on uh, computer bulletin board. It was a mathematical proof that uh, Barney the dinosaur was actually Satan because by breaking down the letters and playing with numbers in a certain way, you came with the number 666. So my complaint is that these mathematical games, when you only use the numbers to define what you want to come out, really don't mean anything. Uh, it is a, now, that is an interesting criticism, uh, John, and I was going to ask you about that myself, that in essence, uh, if you play long enough uh, and look at events and to string them together, as you suggest, uh, is your specialty, um, or connecting events, you can uh, set out and finally prove about anything. Absolutely. If I wanted to find my birth date by uh, finding the 77th tier two inches over from the top and, you know, some other stone two inches from some other place, I'm sure I could do that. However, um, one must realize that if you want to contrive things, tell me how. All we looked at the height of the pyramid, it's periphery, period. <laughs> There's nothing contrived about that. When we got into the pyramid, all we measured was, was the length of the passages, 
period. And we use the same unit of measure throughout, from the outside to the inside. So if you want to contrive things, be my guest. But it's really hard to contrive things. I mean, when you talk about Barney and the number 666, well, 666 is easy to come by. Who said it was Ronald Reagan in post address? Yeah, that's right. 666 is not a exclusive... And then they tried to get there. The trick is going the other way. If you look at something and only measure its height and its periphery and the length of passages all in the same measurement and all these things taking place, that's not being constructed. All right, what about graduate student projects that have created uh, pyramids? Or... Well, the first thing is that if the graduate students trying hard to be published, you wonder what they're going to say. But second of all, I can assure you that no one's ever solved the problems of the Great Pyramid. They could build them and say, look, we built these stones and with pulling people, we moved one ton stone, we had more people, we could pull more, and they could be conclusion. However, the Japanese demonstrated when you went up in scale, the things that supported this weight no longer worked. It, 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 because the Japanese, funded by the Japanese government, attempted to build a scale model of the Great Pyramid. I think it was like a one-quarter scale. It lapsed under its own weight because things we didn't talk about. The Great Pyramid has things like cornerstones that have uh, uh, special uh, anchor mechanisms that we have only on modern bridges, and so it pulls in sockets and so forth to allow it to have lasted this time. Uh, other pyramids, even Egypt, poor copies of the pyramids have bulges on them because of its great weight. They literally can't stand. Uh, the pyramid is unique, even to Egyptian pyramids, and there has never been anybody of any credible value ever making the claim that they could understand how it was done or they could replicate it. All right. Um, hi there. On the toll-free line, you're on the air with John Zajac. Where are you calling from, please? Hello. Hello. Where are you calling from, sir? Hello. Turn the radio, the radio off. Actually. Yes, sir. I, I sure did. All right. Go ahead. Well, uh, regarding the... Uh, the Great Pyramid, there's a couple of passages in the uh, Old Testament, I think, re regarding that. I could only find one. Um, from what I can gather, it also speaks of Christ. And that's in Isaiah, uh, chapter 19, and that's uh, starting with verse 19. Yes, very common passage. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're familiar with that? Well, of course. Oh, well, uh, there's, there's, there's so much that we couldn't get into in this short period. Uh -huh. Um uh, what's your interpretation of Do you think of that speaking of the pyramid? It sure sounds exactly like the pyramid. Um, for everyone else's uh, edition, that passage, I could look it up and quote it to you, but basically it says that a altar to the Lord will be built center of Egypt at its, at its border, which in the first place sounds like a contradiction because that could be at the center and at the border, but there were always two Egypts, the upper Egypt and lower Egypt, the different pharaohs wearing different colored hats, and the, the, the borderline between Egypt goes right through the pyramid. What? I mean, what a coincidence. What a coincidence. And, of course, the Giza pyramid, uh, the, the Great Pyramid is called the Pyramid of Giza, which also means the border, the border of, of the river, I, I suspect. Um, actually, the word pyramid doesn't, isn't even Egyptian. It's Greek from the word pyros and mitos, I guess, but basically means center of knowledge and wisdom. All right, John, on the toll-free line, you're on the air with John Zajac. Hi, where are you calling from, please? Portland, Oregon. Okay, go ahead. Well, I had a question for your guest. I wanted to know if he believed that Christ that would be the Son of God and Savior of the world, and what his opinion on the Bible was, and if his research at all affected his belief of it. All right. Uh, care to talk about your beliefs at all, John? Well, I, yeah, sure, why not? Because biases can't be removed. Um, though my book does not try to make case for it except to show similarity between science and theology stating that they need not be diametrically opposed. Uh, I do, in fact, uh, accept Jesus Christ as, uh, as the Son of God, and I think that there's a lot of, of scientific things that can be proved scientifically uh, within the Bible, though I am not trying to prove the Bible, rather that when I do the scientific investigation, as 
scientist once says, but haven't I heard some of this before? And just as the other caller said, gee, does the Bible refer to the Great Pyramid? It's interesting to note that it, it might, uh, but I don't make a big deal about it. I would like to understand how I would like to understand, John, how you. Um, structured your research. Were you? Uh, did you start out uh, trying to find uh, some connection to the dates, uh, the birth of Christ, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, crucifixion, um, all the rest of that, um, or did you? Were you led to that by the numbers? Actually, what I was doing was research for myself. I wanted to know if it was the air safe to breach. I live in California. We're going to fall off into the ocean. Are the banks going to be there? Is the financial system, you know, cure? And I did this research as a research scientist for me. Where do I start a family? Where do I live? Where do I place my investment? Uh, what do I eat and what do I breathe? And as I did that, um,
and, and pestilence worldwide. Earthquake, by the way, we have 6,000% more earthquakes today than we had just 40 years ago. Uh, a great one about to happen momentarily in, in Japan that's going to devastate the whole Western banking system. And, of course, John, the Book of Revelation talks about the Battle of Armageddon. And if that's not a good description of how World War III um, is culminated, then I don't know what is. So they all had common elements. They all stated it in different words, but they overlap very, very clearly in, in their predictions for the future. All right. Uh, wild card line, you're on the air with John. Whoops, would have been on the first time caller line. You're on the air with John Stakai. All right. Well, I guess he's gone. On the toll-free line, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, hello, Carson, California. Yes, Carson. Uh, I hear you. Uh, uh, one of the uh, interesting Bible verses you have alluded to, at least what I've heard, is the one where a star called Wormwood apparently falls in all of fresh water, making all fresh water undurable and deadly. And uh, some uh, prophecy-type preachers in the radio have equated that star to be some kind of mineral that is actually poisonous to the uh, freshwater system. And I'm curious, did you, is your guest aware of any uh, asteroid or comet that would potentially have some kind of a mineral or a compound in there that could do that kind of damage to all fresh water? All right, Wormwood. No, but I'll tell you one thing real interesting about Wormwood, and I guess it's written in Greek in the original, and Greek in Wormwood comes out Chernobyl. And so, what a coincidence again. Chernobyl is Wormwood. And if you're going to talk about the waters being poisoned, um, I can't think of a better way to do it through radiation, but I think it's mankind doing it to mankind that will accomplish that particular task. All right. So, fine, you're on here with John. Yeah. What are you calling him, please? Anchorage, Alaska. Yes, sir. This is Martin, uh, ufologist, theologian we've talked about at the time. Yes, Martin. A um, couple of questions. Uh, uh, I'm curious. Uh, I don't agree. Uh, I think that it is possible that there could be... Um, a combination of extraterrestrial or um, superior intelligence other than earthly and not necessarily uh, uh, the supreme being involved here, is it not possible? Well, only if that, that, that extraterrestrial being uh, had a de desire to promote religion and at the same time had the ability to control events thousands of years in advance. And then, then you'd be right. Then my only question is, why is he promoting religion, and why is he telling the whole world that these events will occur, and on these particular times, particularly the most significant one is the birth and crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Well, my real question would be not regarding necessarily religion, but the truth. I mean, that's really, and that's my religion, but religion can make beliefs, so many of them false. Oh, but what I'm saying is that if this, this uh, Martian, if you want, for want of a better term, not only as to the earth, but could also control future events on planet Earth with good precision. Why is he doing it with such a obviously religious figure, except to promote religion? And I'm not saying religion is bad, and I'm not saying some religions are not equal to other religions. I'm just saying, obviously, Jesus Christ is a religious figure. Why well, I would message directed at a religious figure? Yeah, I have a problem with the term religion, in that the most you want to be spiritual. I mean, okay, there you go. I mean, okay, there you go. Okay. Well, then, okay, I don't have a problem with that. Okay. You know, it, neither do I. Do you believe that, uh, you know, planet Earth is the only place that God created life? Uh, no, and uh, nothing that I said here to get... Okay, well, if you live of life from other places, I mean, say that we are not of this world, and he had sheep which were not of, of this flock, and I would interpret yeah, that, that, could, that could certainly have been the tribes of, of the ten tribes of, of Israel. But that's what's been assumed uh, yeah, by the... Yeah, but what I'm saying is, even if he created life on other planets, or if life evolved anyway on other planets, my only concern here is, is that could some other life form, regardless of how technologically advanced, uh, be able to predict and control the, the future so well 
And if so, why would it be centered around a spiritual thing? Okay. Uh, Wildcard line. Wildcard line. You're on the air with John Zajac. Hi. Hi. Uh, when we're talking about the asteroids and so forth, uh, how big a piece would it take to hit the Earth with such force that it would sort of like pop and let the hot stuff out from the inside? Uh, <laughs> well, well, good point. Um, I'm not sure how much the hot stuff would come out, but surely in, in sizes that we're talking about, somewhere between two and five miles in diameter, we would probably move the Earth off its course somewhat. We would probably shake it off its axis. We would probably create a wobble. Uh, aside from the earthquakes and the tidal waves, which uh, would be over 300 feet high and circumvent the, the globe several times. Uh, by the way, a 300-foot wave would probably climb 1,000-foot mountains without mm. any difficulty. Mm. Uh, aside from all of that, um, you know, it would certainly cause uh, eruptions uh, worldwide and certainly a lot of hot stuff coming out from where the impact was. But uh, it, would, it would do other things, too, like, 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 like knock it off its axis, push it off its orbit slightly, um, create dust and debris. It, it would be, well, it, at the very beginning of the program, we said, uh, well, something like, you know, a catastrophe. Well, let me tell you, the world's recorded history has ne not only never seen one like this, it can't possibly imagine all the ramifications and destruction uh, of what we call planet Earth and our society uh, due to it. John, we're way short on time. Um, I, I guess I would like to uh, sort of wrap up by saying we didn't have enough time. Could obviously have used a couple programs more. We will have you back again, possibly on the uh, syndi other syndicated program as well. Okay. Uh, let me um, give out again uh, the telephone number uh, where people can order your book. Is, is that all? Do you, do you have videos as well? Um, well, when people call, we can talk about it, but there are some audios on different aspects, including the Great Pyramid and, and some of these other subjects as well. All right. It's area code 408-226-0750, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, John, it has been wonderful having you here. Thank you. And we will have you back. Well, super. All right. Thank you, Thank you John. John Zajac, and I'm sorry.